We have a lot to cover tonight, so just prepare yourselves for a lot of information. Believe it or not, there's a lot to talk about with water in the first three chapters. I know two months ago when you were thinking about Genesis 1 through 3, the first thing that came to mind is, what's the deal with water? And you got to spend a week on that, so that's exciting. So before we go any further, I want to talk about five types of water, because the Israelites had a lot of vocabulary and language built around water, and it could represent life, or it could represent death, depending on what type of water you're talking about. So I'm just going to introduce five types of water. First type is the tahom. And this is the primordial deep. So they believed that their image of non-creation or non-life, they imagined as this undulating, chaotic, abysmal waters. And it was a way for them to describe chaos and nothingness. So when they thought of what existed before God created everything, they imagined chaos, like chaotic nothingness, rather than immateriality, or immaterial, whatever. Anyway, so they depicted it as these undulating waters. And there was kind of three chaos realms, or three images in the Israelite mind that represented non-life or disorder. The deep to home, the darkness, and the desert, or the wilderness. Because in each of those areas, there's no observable life. And so that's what they imagined when they imagined nothing, these waters. They also shared this view with their neighbors in Egypt, in Canaan, in Babylon. So I mentioned to you guys a couple weeks ago or something that uh, the story of, in Babylon, of Marduk facing off with Tiamat, the saltwater dragon goddess. And he like slices her in half. Gruesome battle. But the Babylonian narrative began with Tiamat and Apsu, these two water gods, and from them everything else comes. Or with the Egyptians, again, they believed that before there was anything, there were these chaotic, abysmal waters, and then land rose up and the gods started multiplying, creating order. And so just like in our Bibles, before God creates anything, we see these waters. And you might be thinking like, wait, this is before God created anything. How is there water? It's just that that was their way of communicating nothingness. And because of this, large bodies of water reminded the Israelites of the Tehom. So, for instance, with Moses, when he led the people through the sea and the Pharaoh went in after them, and like God separated the waters, when the waters crashed back down and destroyed the Pharaoh and all of his chariots, Moses later sings a song in Exodus chapter 15. And in his song, he says, it was like the Pharaoh sank like a stone into the Tehom. So it wasn't like the sea reads, it wasn't the Tehom, but you imagine Moses looking on that event and all these waters crashing down on the Pharaoh. And that effectively means that he is being decreated. He's dying. Because no life can exist in the Tehom. Then we come to Jesus, where this one time in Mark chapter 4, he 
talks about this story when Jesus went to the Gentile region and came across this demonized man. And I mentioned this story back when we talked about Elohim. So it's this Gentile demonized man, and the demons are begging Jesus not to send them into the abyss. And the abyss was the Greek way of referring to the Tahom. So think these abysmal waters. And so here's the deal. They asked Jesus to give them permission to go into the pigs instead, which I love that. They have to ask Jesus for permission. And Jesus says, go. They go into the pigs. Where do the pigs go? Into the water. It's the Sea of Galilee that the pigs are jumping into. But the irony, the imagery, there's thick irony in that chapter that they kind of are going into the abyss. So that's just a fun story that connects to Jesus. Um, so yeah, large bodies of water reminded the Israelites of the Tehom. Second type of water is the Mabul. And it is the heavenly sea. So it's associated with floods and with rainwater. And there we go. <laughs> We're going to get into it more in a minute. But yes, they did believe that there was a sea above them. We'll, again, get into that in just a second. Just hold that in your brain for now. Third type of water is called the Mayim. This is just the neutral term for water or waters. So these are controlled, more ordered waters where there is potential. Like it's not this chaotic, undulating water like the Tehom. It's ordered and now there's some potential. And so in Genesis 1, verse 2, you saw both the Tehom and the Mayim. So it says that darkness was over the face of the Tehom, the deep. And the breathwind spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the Mayim. And so in God's presence, the Tehom is stilled. It's tamed. And now, what represented non-life and chaos, it now has the potential to produce life. And note on this, the whole deal with the breath, wind, spirit of Elohim. The word for breath, wind, and spirit, both in Greek and in Hebrew, is one word. So anytime you see breath, wind, or spirit, it's just one word. Ruach in Hebrew or Pneuma in Greek, which is where we get pneumonia, because breath. Fourth type of water is dead water, and it's just still water. It's called dead water because it's just not moving. So <clears throat> in the famous Psalm 23, you lead me beside still waters. Don't have Scotland River in mind. Be thinking wilderness puddle. It doesn't, it doesn't make for a good picture. But that's what, the, that's what David is saying. Because the emphasis is not on David's surroundings, it is the faithfulness of his shepherd to provide his daily bread. You give me everything I need for today. So our security is in him, not in our situation. Fifth type of water is living water. So this is springs or rivers. It's water that's moving. And this one especially represented life. You really want to live near living water. So just think of a map of, the, of like North Africa, 
Mesopotamia, Middle East, as it is today. It is a very arid area, unless there is water. So whether it's the Nile or the Tigris-Euphrates or Palestine area, if you're not by any water, there's no life. But if you're close to water, there's just magically life everywhere. And so in the minds of the people in the ancient Near East, when they thought about the origins of life, what came to mind was water. So that's the five types of water. We ready to get into days two and three of creation? God splits the water, and what's going on with that? So we can read days two and three of creation with preconceived ideas about what it's describing, which is why I had you guys draw it this week. Because when we slow down and we actually think through what does this say in and of itself, we can kind of be... <laughs> surprised and confused about what it's actually talking about and just kind of confronts us of what is this saying? So when we hear the word earth, we tend to think of a globe, planet earth. For a long time, we've known that the earth is a globe, but not that long. For the Israelites, these people were living at the time when no one knew that the earth was a globe. From the majority of human history, people believed that the earth was flat. And so Moses, the Israelites, their Egyptian, Canaanite neighbors, everyone thinks the earth is flat. So what we call earth, they thought of as a flat piece of land instead. And so in the creation story, we see God separating the waters. He separates the Mayim from the Mayim, the waters above from the water waters below, and he creates this little pocket of air in between, which can sound really weird to us. But this is what they imagine, that God created a little bubble in the waters. And he pushed some water up, he pushed some water down, and then pulled the dry ground out of the water below. And so why would they have thought that there's water above them or a heavenly sea? Because there's water up there. It comes down sometimes in rain. Sometimes it magically comes down in the form of dew. It just mysteriously is there in the morning. It's the color of water. And so they thought, yeah, there's water up there. There's got to be because water comes down from the sky. And then why would they have thought that there's water under the land, that the land's just a floating disk on water? Because if you dig down far enough, you hit water, and you build a well. Or you'll come across a spring, and it's just like mysteriously bubbling up from the ground. That's weird. So when the Israelites imagined the universe, they thought of a bubble. And the land is just floating inside the bubble like a disc on the waters. And again, this was imagery that they shared with all of their neighbors. So again, referring back to that battle between Marduk and Tiamat that the Babylonians believed in, he slices her in half, the saltwater dragon, pushes half of her up, becomes the sky, yeah, she's the heavenly sea, pushes half of her down, that becomes the home down below. Then he starts building everything. 
And same with the Egyptians. They believed that, like, if you look at Egyptian cosmology, you'll see similar imagery there. And then we get to this word, rakia. So I left this word untranslated because when we do translate it, you'll find words like volt or firmament or expanse, which, honestly, I have never been aided by. For all the years I've read Genesis 1, I have never read the word expanse and been like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that's talking about. Never been my experience. But they believed that there was this rakia, this solid thing, like a dome or a skin, that is holding the water up there. Because the water's not coming down, so something has to be holding it up. And they called that solid thing the rakia. So maybe like firmament actually is helpful, because at least has firm in the word. But they believe that something solid was holding everything up. And the sun, moon, and stars, the Elohim, they are inside the bubble, going across the top of the rakia. And the clouds are windows for the waters above. They're windows for the heavenly sea. So they didn't necessarily associate rain directly with clouds, but instead clouds function like a window into the heavenly sea above, into the mabul. And so everything that you, that's ever been created is inside the bubble. The universe is inside the bubble. All the Elohim, all the humans, all the land, everything is inside the bubble except Yahweh Elohim. He is not inside the bubble like all the other Elohim are. His throne is above the waters above, the heaven of heavens or the sky of skies. And so in Isaiah 66 verse 1, he says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. So you get this idea of him being like kind of sitting on top. And this week in your homework, you took a look at the flood narrative a little bit later on in Genesis. And I wanted you guys to read that because it's a time where we see the Mabul and the Tahom again. So in the flood story, the Mabul and Tahom collapse back down together. The bubble pops. It's a decreation story where the waters above and below collide back down together, dry land disappears, everything dies. It is swallowed by the Tahom again goes back to its essentially pre-created state. That's the imagery that Moses wants to get across. And so in Genesis chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, he says, The waters of the Mabul came upon the land, and on that day the fountains of the Tehom burst open. And then, the very first verse of chapter 8, you see God's breath, wind, spirit being sent over the face of the waters. And what can we expect when we see God's breath and spirit over the face of waters? A new creation. And systematically, God makes everything new. The waters separate again, and then we have dry land that emerges. And then Noah sends out a dove to see, ah, there's, there's trees on the dry land now. And then a little while later, there's animals and humans on the dry land. And then God makes another 
blessing, gives another mandate, be fruitful and multiply. And then there's another garden in the form of a vineyard. And then another curse and more nakedness. Moses is up to something when he's writing this. But when we see God's breath wind spirit over the waters, it marks new creation. And I bring this up because of Jesus' baptism, where we see very similar imagery, where it says that God's breath wind spirit descended like a dove over the waters when Jesus was baptized. So in this act of, I mean, there's so much that Jesus was doing in his baptism. So much was going on. But at least two of the things is that Jesus was both claiming to be a better Noah who was going to save his people from death and destruction, but also that he was marking the beginning of a new creation. God was going to begin making everything new through him. And so all throughout the Old Testament, it is made clear that Yahweh is the one who has authority over the waters. He is the one who splits the waters. And so in Psalm 89, verses 8 through 9, the psalmist says, Who is like you, Yahweh Elohim of hosts? You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you hush them. You still them. And so, you know, I mentioned that demonized Gentile man. Well, it's an interesting story of what led Jesus to that demonized Gentile man. Because that was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In the Gentile area. And all of Jesus' 12 disciples were Jewish young men. And especially a lot of them were quite conservative Jewish young men. And you do not, you, you do not casually go into a Gentile city. You're not supposed to drink or eat with a Gentile. So why would you go to a Gentile city? They will contaminate you. You will be polluted spiritually. And so these boys, they do not want to go to the Gentile area. Jesus tells them, get in the boat. They get in the boat. They go across the sea. Now these, a lot of these boys are fishermen. You don't fish in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. You fish pretty close to shore. But Jesus tells them to go across. And as they're in the middle of the sea, a great storm arose. This is in Mark 4. Great storm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. They're halfway across, the boat's already filling with water. Imagine that event from the perspective of these Jewish boys. The water up there is collapsing down. The water down here is being heaved up. Flood. Decreation to home. This is a micro-decreation story in their minds. That's what they're experiencing. That's what it reminds them of. And they're certain that they're going to die because life can't exist in that kind of water. Meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. He's asleep on a cushion in a boat during a storm. There is only one other point in all of your Bible 
that you will see a man asleep on a cushion in a boat during the middle of a storm. Jonah, who did not want to go to the Gentile city of Nineveh, but God wanted him to go there. Jesus is a good teacher, and he's for sure up to something in this. And so Jesus, or they told Jesus, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care that we're dying? Like they, they know what it means when the water above and below claps back down together. And Jesus gets up, and he hushed the waves. He said, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, there was great calm. Jesus isn't just saying that he has control over the weather. Jesus is claiming to be the one in the beginning who, by a word, separated those waters. So like what Psalm 89 says, Who is like you, Yahweh Elohim of hosts? You rule the raging sea. When the waves, waves rise, you hush them. You still them. So who is like Yahweh Elohim? Jesus is. This is a direct claim of divinity. So in Genesis, we continue on past chapter 1 in the very different view of the universe than our view of the universe. We eventually encounter a spring and four rivers. And so chapter 2 begins a different kind of creation story. Because remember, there were three images that represented non-life and chaos. Darkness, the deep to home, which Genesis 1-2, already encountered those. And the third one was the wilderness, the desert. So chapter 2 begins a different kind of story, which again, the Babylonians, Egyptians, they had lots of water stories and lots of desert stories. And so here we see a desert story, where now the problem is that there's no water. There's not enough water. God causes a spring to come out, and he builds a garden around the spring, and then he creates the human, and then there's, the spring turns into four rivers outside the garden, and then he makes a garden and the human. If God is storytelling, he's not doing a great job. He's repeating himself. We knew that you made a garden, God. We knew that you made the human. But that's how the story goes. Garden, human, four rivers, garden, human. Reed's really awkward. And we're kind of left just wondering, what's the deal with the rivers? So what's the deal with the rivers? <sighs> so people have tried to find Eden based off of the four rivers. But we have to ask, why is Moses writing this to these Israelites who are wandering around in the wilderness with him? Why was it important to them that they hear about the four rivers? And more, why was it important enough to Moses to write this down so that generation after generation after generation of Israelite would know about these four rivers? Why is it so important? So let's see what we can learn Four rivers. So the first one is the Pishon. It means gusher. And it's in the land of Havilah, which is 
Northeast Africa area. And there is gold in that land. And the gold, ooh, it's good. That's some good gold. There's bdellium, there's onyx. Why are we reading this? Why do we need to know what is in the land of Havilah? Well, Havilah was associated with Egypt. It was on the way to Egypt. Like if someone is around Havilah, you know, oh, they're going to Egypt. They're almost there. So it was associated with Egypt. And you know what they were going to need a lot of, these Israelites in the wilderness? To build a tabernacle? They were going to need a lot of gold. And these are slaves. Where in the world did they get so much gold to build both a golden calf and the tabernacle from Egypt? The last night when they, with the formal exodus out of Egypt, they plundered all the Egyptians by the Egyptians just giving them their gold. They effectively plundered them that way by the Egyptians just giving it away. Because the Egyptians knew at that point that their God was awesome. They had fear of the Lord because Yahweh just executed 10 of their most famous deities in Egypt. And so they got gold, a lot of gold, a lot of good gold from the Egyptians. And then bdellium. This word only shows up one other time in the entire Bible. And it is described, or it's used to describe the way that manna looked. So these Israelites with Moses, every day for 40 years, are waking up, and the dew just magically turns into this stuff that they can eat. It's called the bread of heaven. And it looks like bdellium. It's one other time you see this word. And then you knew who was going to need onyx, who it was going to be really important that they had onyx stone, the high priest, because he would wear that on his garments to represent the people of God when he went in before the Lord. So gold, bdellium, onyx, the Israelites wandering around the wilderness with Moses were very familiar with these three things. And what would that have meant to them to hear about this spring from the garden of God, and it goes out and splits into these four rivers. And one of them, there's gold, bdellium, onyx. What they would have heard is, you were just downstream. You might look around and see desert and nothing and chaos, and it threatens your life every day. But you are just downstream from the garden of God. Hold on to that for a couple more weeks. We're going to get to it. The uh, second river is called the Gihon, means burster. And it is one of the springs that fed the city of Jerusalem. So it was a big deal. So this one is a spring in and of itself. But it is primarily just the one, most importantly, the one that fed Israel, or Jerusalem water. Third river is the Tigris, goes to the land of Assyria, and fourth is the Euphrates. Not a lot of information is given about those. 
So these are the four rivers. What else can we learn? Well, <laughs> there's four rivers. And four is the number that represents the land and the creatures of the land and creation. So just like seven represented completeness, the number four represents creation. So you might see in your Bibles the four winds, the four living creatures, the four corners of the land or the earth. Or like in Revelation, there's three sets of sevens. So there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And the first four of each of those have to do with judgment on the land, with creatures. And then the last three have to do with cosmic judgment. So four represents the land, creatures of the land, God's creation. And we also know that each of these rivers were connected to a particular civilization. So the Pishon, because of its proximity to Havilah, and Egypt was associated with Egypt. The Gihon was associated with Israel. Tigris associated with the kingdom of Assyria. And the kingdom that sits on the Euphrates is Babylon. So we got Egypt, Israel, Assyria, and Babylon. And these are the four major players in the whole Old Testament. So Israel, they encountered other kings, other kingdoms, but these are the four main empires that you see in the Old Testament. But these empires effectively were like little pockets of life in the wilderness because they sat on these, these waters, these living waters. And there was a lot of garden-like imagery. Like when people thought about Egypt, they were like, oh, that place, it's like the Garden of God down there. They got the Nile. When Moses and the Israelites sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, and they brought back word. What they said was, this place, this land of Canaan, it looks like the Garden of God. Or when Jeremiah spoke about the Israelites or the Judeans being taken off into captivity to Babylon, Jeremiah said, go with them, don't resist, build houses, and plant gardens. It's very important to Jeremiah that they build houses and plant gardens in Babylon. But these are the world's greatest empires, the centers of life and civilization and thriving and order and flourishing. I mean, pretty close to Babylon, they had flushing toilets. I'm just saying. There was a lot of order, a lot of flourishing. But what can we learn from these four rivers is that the flourishing, man's greatest attempts at order and life and thriving. It's not because of our hard work, but primarily as a result of God's generosity. He's the one who gets credit for any bit of success and thriving. God wants to share the blessing of Eden with the nations. He sends it to Israel, which we should be unsurprised by, but also to Egypt and Assyria and Babylon. Those were terrible countries. They committed atrocities. Like not just in scripture, but just historical atrocities. 
Why would God share the spring of Eden with these people? He wants to share the Eden blessing with the world. It's the same reason that God would want Jonah so badly to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Because no matter how wicked we are, he wants to make us new. He wants the nations to experience Eden, and so he gives them a taste of it so that they would go upstream, so that they would find him. Our greatest flourishing is merely a diminished experience compared to the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom that all of us are invited into. So throughout the Old Testament, the biblical authors talk a lot about water. And when they describe what God is like, they say that he is like a spring of water. He gives life and flourishing. He is the source of all flourishing. They give him the credit We, then we come to Jesus. And in John's gospel especially, John really likes to talk about water, whether that's the wedding of Cana or the woman at the well, like what you guys read about. And in John chapter 7, he talks about how Jesus went to the great day ceremony, celebration. So the Feast of Booths was going on, Sukkot. And the final day, or the great day of Sukkot, Feast of Booths, there was this water ceremony. And because it's the beginning of the rainy season, and so they would do this ceremony to ask God to provide them life again for another year and just to celebrate God's faithfulness. And so it was like a really loud event. People were going nuts celebrating and singing and cheering, and they brought like palm fronds and shook them because it sounds like rain, like people are just pumped. They are hyped. It is loud. And the high priest and the priest, they would take a pitcher of water and go down, get, scoop some water, go around the temple. Then the high priest would ascend the altar and he would dump the water into the altar and <laughs> big steam cloud would rise up and the people would go nuts. But they would be quiet when the high priest went up. So really loud event. The only time it's really quiet is when the high priest ascends and they're like, oh, anticipation. And on that day, Imagine yourself at the event. Everyone hushes down as the high priest is ascending. And then you hear in the distance, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How do you think the high priest felt <laughs> about Jesus in that moment? Jesus is saying that he has the authority to give the Spirit of God because God is the spring of living water. That day had been connected to symbolize the blessing that the Messiah would bring, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And Jesus is claiming that he has the authority to give the Spirit of God. Bold claim. But more than that, that he turns his people into springs. 
He makes his people his conduit of blessing the nations. Just like he had told Israel that they were going to be a kingdom of priests to intercede for the nations and invite them in. God's heart has never changed. He wants the nations to come in and he makes his people still today his conduit of doing that. Like I said, John really likes water imagery. And when he gets to the crucifixion of Jesus, which John was the only one of the 12 disciples who was an eyewitness to the death of Jesus. All the rest of them had scattered, but he stayed there. And he recounts some of the last words that Jesus said on the cross. I thirst. Think about that statement in light of everything we've learned. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, for the first time was thirsty. And it wasn't for drinking water. Jesus didn't just take the weight of a painful death. Remember, everything is inside the bubble, except God. When Jesus suffered on the cross, he did not suffer the weight of everything inside the bubble. The pain of physical hands and feet. He suffered the pain of the God of high heaven. The wrath of his father himself. And for the first time in all of eternity, the second person of the Trinity was thirsty. So that we wouldn't have to be. Jesus trades places with us. We should be in the wilderness. But he takes our place in the wilderness. He becomes dry so that we could be satisfied. When John talks about after Jesus dies, he says that a Roman centurion came up and pierced him through the side into his heart. And when he pulled out the spear, blood and water came out. Why the mention of water? John is intentional. Like, I know that when someone dies, plasma separates from the red blood cells. So is John just saying this to be like he was really dead? We know he was really dead. None of the other gospel authors felt the need to include this word. But thinking about all of John's thoughts going into his gospel, all of those water references, out of his side, out of his death, came blood and water. Jesus is the source of the spring of life. His death and love and sacrifice is the spring that gives you and I life. We cannot have life without his death. Genesis 1, verse 2, we saw that God had the power to turn the home into the Mayim. He was able to take something that represented death and chaos 
and instead use it to turn it into life. And in the crucifixion of Christ, God took what looked like death and used it to bring about life so that there could be flourishing in a dry and weary land so that the nations could experience life and blessing. God has never changed. In the second sentence of your Bible, he has never changed. The Lord has always been about saving the world, about every nation knowing who he is and being welcomed in, so much so that he interrupts himself in the creation narrative. The Israelites couldn't get away from it. God wants them to go to the Gentiles. He wants the world to come to him. And he makes us his means of doing that. God had told the Israelites, you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then us, by me being a Gentile, have been grafted in to that family. To where he says to all of us, this church, Jew and Gentile, we are a nation of priests. And what are priests supposed to do? We intercede. He makes us the means of blessing the nations so that the nations can come upstream and see who he is. But today, 42% of the world does not have real access to the gospel. So then what does it look like for us to partner with God in bringing the good news of Jesus to them, the good news of the spring of living water? Because God cares about every nation, every people group. And just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that he was sending them out to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth to make disciples and teach them his ways. So then for us, we have to think about what does it look like for us to partner with God in bringing water to the wilderness? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you never change, that even though there's so many thoughts about how uh, the God of the Old Testament is so wrathful and the God of the New Testament is so kind, you have never changed. We see from these first words that you have never changed. Lord, your eyes were always on the cross. I thank you, Lord Jesus. Your eyes were always fixed on that cross, that you refused to let us perish. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you took the wrath of God, not just physical suffering, but you took the only thing that actually bears true weight. You took the wrath of God himself. So Lord, we praise you, we thank you, we love you. Would we be compelled by your kindness to trust you more, that when we feel like we are surrounded by chaotic waters, when we feel crushed, when we feel like we are being undone and destroyed, would we remember you, that you are the God who calms the raging sea? So would you calm our doubt and anxiety? Would we trust you? Would we love you more? 
Amen.